Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. This is the third in a series of four interviews with changemakers from Sharon Salzberg's new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, which offers a new perspective on how activism and meditation practice can uplift each other. These four individuals are making change on the ground and in real people's lives through activism, outreach, art, and policy. Our guest today is Daisy Hernandez, the author of the award-winning memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, and the co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism. Daisy is assistant professor in the creative writing program at Miami University in Ohio and a tricycle contributing editor. Through difficult times, she has become an expert on the concept of equanimity. She wrote about this idea in an article for Tricycle a few years back. In this episode, I spoke with Daisy and Sharon about what equanimity means to them and how meditation can help us get through the most difficult times in our lives. Daisy Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us on Tricycle Talks. Uh, As you know, I'm here with Sharon Salzberg, who was gracious enough to bring you here today. You know, I was talking to Sharon, in fact, about something you wrote for Tricycle online recently called The World is Here in My Spine, and you write about finding refuge in your posture. And Sharon had a few things to ask about that. So Sharon, why don't you go ahead? (laughs) Well, I was, first of all, really appreciative of the article and also really intrigued by it. My earliest training in meditation really came from Burmese teachers, and they're not especially into posture. I think even Burmese Buddhas, the statues have like a little slump. And yet reading your article, I just got such a sense of what that awareness might do for one, you know, in terms of centeredness and in the middle of so much sorrow and grief and anxiety and everything that we're going through, how it could be really a refuge. So I wondered if you could just speak a little bit about that. Yeah, it was quite a surprise for me because I didn't start out with a Zen teacher. As I wrote in the piece, I sort of accidentally ended up with a Zen teacher at a point in my life where this was over a decade ago where things had turned upside down. So I was in South Florida. And if you're not familiar with Hialeah, Hialeah is sort of like the headquarters for all Cuban exiles in Florida. It's not a hotbed (laughs) for the Dharma. So, oh my God, I've just found someone through word of mouth who's also sitting And I had actually avoided Zen teachers, I think, because I knew they were hard on the rules. (laughs) But when I sat with her, you know, my mind was so insanely scattered during that time in my life. There was so much grief. I had lost an auntie who had been like a mother to me. My dad had just had this major stroke. My personal life was up in the air. My job was disappearing. My mind was, I guess, a symphony of thought and worry and anxiety. I mean, she was an incredible teacher. Shotai is her name. And to have her bring that attention to what I remember most first is my chin. (laughs) Um, Where was my chin? And I had never thought about my chin before when I was sitting down. But to have it in like sort of, you know, the little string from the top of your head going to the ceiling, but to have that chin tucked in a little bit and that the idea that where my chin was could indicate where my mind was, was just amazing to me. And I really think she gave me such an incredible gift. You know, I didn't exactly know in the moment that it was such a gift, but such a gift that that I could take refuge in my body 
I had never had anyone pay that much attention to my sitting bones. Not that she was looking at my sitting bones, but that she was talking about them um, and, and like telling me to feel them and talking about my um, perineum, which is a word I can never pronounce exactly. Yeah, it was like all of a sudden my body was this new territory. And, and that was surprising because I had done a lot of um, meditations that did focus on body scans and mindfulness of the body. But this was just, yeah, it was almost like the precision of the instructions were just uh, were such a gift and such a refuge during that time. And, and I did not expect to come back to that during this COVID time, but sitting and having someone, you know, during a Dharma talk, I heard somebody talking about it and it just took me back to that. And I was like, oh, right, right. Just sitting here is an incredible refuge. Sharon, so what prompted you to bring Daisy into the book? Into Real Change? Yes. Well, in the book, there's this kind of a funny loop where I, I feel like I talked about a lot of things people go through personally in trying to make a difference in the world, like moving from anger to courage and then from grief to resilience. And and then I, I really kind of expanded out to the best of my ability to like a, a vision of more systemic change, not just person to person. And then I looped around. The last story in the book is somebody who's a Zen practitioner who works a lot with homeless people because his father had once been homeless and sort of how he was with his father as his father was dying. And I realized I was doing this loop, but the essence of that was this state of equanimity, that that was kind of a result or almost like a fruition of having moved some from anger to courage and grief to resilience and and then there was this other state, which I felt exemplified by this man. And so... I've always had trouble talking about equanimity well because it's a difficult word. Mostly we hear it, I think, and we tend to hear indifference or coldness or withdrawal or something like that. And I don't remember if I was actually going through the archives of Tricycle or if I was just Googling equanimity. <laughs> and Daisy came up from her article in Tricycle, and, and I thought it was fantastic. And so that's, that's when I reached out to her. So why don't you say something about that article, Daisy, about finding equanimity and how your view of it evolved? This feels like a loop as well, because I too was going through the tricycle archives and and also um, and Dharma Seed, listening to some talks about it too, because that piece that I wrote for Tricycle began with me um, emailing Andrew Cooper. I was just in a place of despair about the political situation. By the way, Andrew Cooper is our features editor, and he's the editor Daisy works with. So go on, Daisy. Yes. Much love to Andrew. He's amazing. He, I don't know how he gets the writing that happens out of me, but he, but he does it. And, and yes, yeah, so it was a loop because I was also looking because uh, as I wrote in the piece, equanimity was the one that I, loving kindness, yes. <laughs> Everything else, yes. But equanimity was, it felt like as I wrote it, I think in the piece, something I would do maybe someday in retirement. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like something uh, for a much more um, later stage of my own personal spiritual growth. And it felt and it felt intimidating as a word. And I was also not clear about that sort of point from, you know, that, that sort of dip into indifference. And I think it was on Dharma Seed. I maybe found a talk, but by, by Gina Sharp that I found really really helpful. I think she used the image of the tree in the storm which is what reminded me of being down in Florida uh, during Hurricane Andrew many, many, many years ago and, um, and seeing one of my, my father's cousin um, 
stay so centered during this really terrifying time where a lot of homes and lives were lost and um and just and watching her do like the next right thing and and she was you know clearly having her feelings about what was happening but that centeredness you know and and I was I guess I was in high school maybe I was young because I I had never seen anything like it in terms of um, death and destruction. And I had never seen trees that trees were actually literally uprooted, these giant, um, kind of mangrove trees. And, uh, so we were walking around the neighborhood seeing what had happened and, um, and didn't have fresh water and, you know, sort of all the things that happened after a really terrible hurricane. And just to see her like still making that amazing pot of black beans, (laughs) um, still, you know, sort of like going into, you know, I take care of my family. I take care of my neighbors. Um, there was, I was like, Oh, this is equanimity. Right. So it's kind of a loop. Uh, I love that, (laughs) that Sharon may have found me, you know, by looking through the archives because I was also, that's what I was doing too. Yeah. Equanimity is such a funny word. My first teacher in India was SN Goenka and it was a, 10-day intensive retreat and began in January 1971. And he used to say all the time, be equanimous, be equanimous, be equanimous. And we used to whisper to each other, is that a word? Like, what does that mean? I never heard that. So in that form, it's especially odd maybe, but I don't think I ever hear the word equanimity in casual conversation in the States to imply something other than, you know, too much detachment or too cool in some way, too cool to care, which of course is not is not meant to be at all. Yeah, it has that SAT word quality to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I started talking about it right as having that balance. Because I think that's a word that we use much more frequently. Um, mm-hmm. like a balanced engagement, right? Not not getting swept yeah. away. You know what I noticed you both talk about first coming to meditation through especially difficult times. Sharon, do you want to say something about that or Daisy, either one of you, how you came to meditation and the circumstances in your life when you did? Yeah, well, I certainly noticed that about Daisy's story, you know, and really my heart went out to you just even reading it and then having, you know, very traumatic childhood myself. And then I resonated very much with your story. And I also remembered the moment that my teacher Deepama told me to teach which was in 1974, and I was coming back to the States for what I was convinced was a very short trip back before I went back to India for the rest of my life. And she said, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. I mean, it's crazy, you know. And then she said, "Uh, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. So not only is that an amazing thing to say, but there's something that I really resonate. It's so honest an experience, you know, to say I'm not in control, you know, this this is really hard. This is so hard. And I really honor that. You know, I really respect that when people can admit their own suffering and actually let in the suffering of others. Yeah, I actually came to meditation a number of years prior to meeting that Zen teacher. Um, and it was because I was reading an excerpt from a Pema Chodron book. And at the time I was maybe just out of college living at home with an alcoholic parent, abusive alcoholic parent. And she was talking in there about, um, about not having to change anything, about being friends with what is. And I was like, wow, I'm in total rage. And she talked about the rage, you know, like even that, like being friendly with that. 
And I was like, she's a what? A Buddhist? <laughs> What's that? I grew up in a very Catholic neighborhood. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely came from a place of suffering. And I think I've heard Pema children talk about, yeah, we all come with these broken hearts. We tend to, not all of us, but many of us. But I remember early on feeling like, this Buddhist thing, like more Latinas need to know about this. <laughs> this is the key. Um, because I, for me, as the child of immigrants, working class immigrants, I was very much told that, right, the solution to suffering was this chasing after the American dream and chasing after some, you know, the illusion of financial security. You know, I remember while I was right out, out of college and I was like, nothing's changed. Like, where, where's the big relief that was supposed to happen? And then coming into contact with the Dharma was like, oh, yeah, I think I'm looking for something else. You know, Daisy, uh, Sharon quotes you in Real Change. I, I believe this is a quote from Real Change. You write, and it was probably for Tricycle, I think, I had always said I would never join a Zen anything. The chants, the rituals, the hierarchy. It all reminded me of Catholicism, as a Catholic, I relate. But after all certainty in my life vanished, and I didn't know what to do next, I found that I didn't care about lineages or traditions. I just needed a place to sit, and people who also wanted to sit. That's very nice. I think it sums it up so nicely. Do either of you want to say anything about that? And Sharon, maybe why that struck you particularly? Well, I did notice you just said as a Catholic rather than as a former Catholic or a lapsed well, Catholic. I'll, or I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to call Just pointing that I'll, out. I'll have, to, I'll have to qualify that. A former Catholic, a lapsed Catholic. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. I, I mean, I honor that tradition. I think it's beautiful, you know. And I'm a bad Catholic. Let's put it that way. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm not. I've never been a Catholic or remotely close to that, having been raised Jewish. And then I went to India when I was 18. And so I don't even know that I would call myself a Buddhist, actually. It depends on the context. Sometimes people ask, and, and I say, I don't think that way. You know, I don't think about that. And, and other times I say yes, because it's the easiest thing to say in terms of the languaging I use and the frameworks that I use and the references that I use and the symbolism that I use. It all comes from there. And I think I would be interested in just hearing about that, what I would really call a moment of faith. It's a moment of going toward and not saying, oh, I think I'll sit back and study the comparison between these two you know, belief systems, but it's really putting yourself into it to try it out. Yeah. And I actually wrote that very intentionally because in my 20s, so when I found Pema Children's books and I went to the Shambhala Center in New York City, I grew up right outside New York City in Jersey. And, and I did go shopping. I did go to the Zen center and I had a, during the chance I had a complete giggle attack. It was just a giggle meltdown. I, I don't know why I was just so self-conscious. And I remember being so anxious, particularly in that time period when I was first coming into contact with the teachings, I was really anxious that I was going to make the wrong decision, you know, like, am I having a reaction to Zen because I should be a Zen person? You know, should I, I mean, it was, I was just so all over the place I, and I was so terrified that I would make the wrong decision. And yeah, in that moment, 10 years ago, when, you know, everything got turned upside down, it was like, oh, I just need to sit with another human being who will sit with me. And I do, I agree with you. I think it was this moment of faith. Um, and, and also this moment of seeing how important the Sangha was. Um, and I remember asking that particular teacher because I was with her for maybe like a month and then I was uh, going to a different place for a few months and I was having such a hard time sitting by myself after sitting with her very consistently. 
And, you know, I expected her to have this very complex answer and about, I'm like, why do I need the Sangha so much? And she's like, we need each other. That was the end of the sentence. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh yeah, at the end of this day, whatever lineage it is. Um, and actually I, I appreciate what you're saying about there are times when I have been in situations where the best thing that I can do is to go into a church and sit down in a pew and be in silence. And, you know, I'm doing my little Dharma thing and I'm imagining that the other person in the other part of the pew is doing a prayer that's different than what I'm doing. But, um, but I think there's something right about the Sangha, right? Like about that faith that hap- that needs to happen in connection with other people. You know, Daisy, you write about the polarization in the country, but what I found especially interesting about the article that Sharon referenced was that you talk about dealing with the polarization in your own family. That's really where the rubber meets the road. Uh, Can you say something about that, that equanimity? Oh, how much time do you have, James? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, I really hit a nerve. this, This week it was, you know, this past week it was, okay, let's take a deep breath while my mother refers to people protesting as being delinquents. It's like, okay, deep breath. I'm thinking now it's really a blessing that there is such a polarization within my own family because it brings the work really close to home. Like after Trump was elected, I had many friends who were like, who the hell would vote for that man? And I was like, my father, my mother. So I don't have this benefit of hanging out in my own you know, corner and not understanding them because I do want to have a relationship with them. And so, yeah, it's an incredible place to practice equanimity, you know, to practice this kind of balanced engagement and the staying centered. And and a lot of it is making sure that I take care of myself so that I'm not constantly on the phone with my mother this week, you know, but that conversation where she wanted to let me know her perspective about the protests happening against police brutality in this country, the police brutality of Black people, you know, I was able to take a deep breath and say, you know, they're not delinquents. People are really, really angry and really upset because police have been murdering Black women, men, and children. We forget about children a lot of times. And I'm here in Ohio where we lost Tamir Rice, who was a child. And so it was a moment of like, yeah, right. Like the suffering is happening right here, right now in my own family. And I also feel like, right, the liberation can also happen here, right? Like the freedom can also happen here, even if it's just me taking a breath and doing that work of finding my own language to describe to her, like, no, people are upset and they have a right to be upset. I'm one of them. I'm upset. Oh, you didn't know. I went to the march on Sunday myself here in Ohio. I feel like it's where the hard work really happens, right, with our loved ones. You know, in my case, it's my parents. It might be a neighbor. It might be someone, you know, I work with but how to find the language so that it's compassionate. Um, Yeah, I guess this is equanimity, right? Compassionate, but still very grounded in what's true, in what's true. It's not just like, oh, this is just my opinion. Police brutality is bad. It's like, no, we agree, actually. (laughs) On human conditions, we agree that we did not set up having the police in our country in order to murder Black people. That was not what we were planning and intending or at least I'm not planning and intending that and many others are not. And so it was also a great opportunity to also talk with her about the fact that, you know, it's the media that she's consuming as well. She's listening to one particular news broadcast in Spanish. And so the news gets framed in a very specific way for her. You know, uh, she doesn't read newspapers. She's not online. So I reminded both of us of that. 
there's a particular representation that she's seeing day after day after day. Real Change is full of people who are socially and politically engaged in very inspiring ways. And you were also the co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism. Can you tell us about that compilation? It's an amazing book. (laughs) I encourage everyone to run out and get a copy. We actually just did a new edition. That book came about, the first edition was in 2002, and it happened because I was discovering feminism and trying to figure out how all that related to my own life. And a wonderful editor at Seal Press invited us to put together this anthology. And so we just sent a call out. This was before social media, back in the day when you got on the phone and you sent individual emails. (laughs) And so we brought together almost 30 women of color from across the country to talk, not in theoretical terms, but really what feminism meant in their own lives. And a lot of it was that they could not see feminism outside of the context of community, because we oftentimes identify so deeply with race and ethnicity of our communities, and we're often under attack. And so feminism had to be part of that conversation. So we were talking about intersectional feminism. We weren't quite using the word yet. Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw had already coined it, but it wasn't necessarily something that we were using in everyday conversation the way we are now, which just amazes me. And what happened with that book was that it ended up, you know, finding an incredible home in women's studies courses, at public libraries, just sort of word of mouth. And people kept asking for a new edition. And I kept saying, oh, you next generation, do it. (laughs) It didn't happen. So we did it again. Um, So we have a new edition that came out last year where we very intentionally went looking for nine new voices. So we invited nine young women of color to write about everything from organizing around being undocumented in feminism, to say her name and losing a sibling in gun violence, to an incredible young activist who started an organization to fight rape on campuses, on college campuses. It's an incredible collection. And to be honest, we actually talked about this with our publisher right around the time the election was happening. And we kind of framed it as, hey, we're about to have the first woman president. You know, the perfect timing for this new anthology. Oh boy. <laughs> Little did we know. And um, the strange thing, too, is that when we were working on the first anthology, the attacks of September 11 happened. And I remember my co-editor, Bushra Rahman, and I thought at that time, should we keep working on this book? And, and maybe Sharon can talk about this as well, because we paused and we're like, we need to be out on the street. What are we doing here working on this book? And I remember we very intentionally had a conversation and decided the book will outlive this particular devastation and could maybe be useful, you know, in other moments. And so it was strange to pitch this book, you know, to our publisher when the election was happening, we thought we're going to get this amazing outcome. And then instead to have an outcome that was devastating for many of us. Um, And what ended up happening is that the book ended up working with these nine young, amazing women ended up being such an incredibly nourishing experience for me. Like I cannot imagine the first two years of this administration without having this opportunity to work with these young women of color because they, you know, they kept my hope alive during sort of some very difficult moments collectively. And they kept me focused. Sharon was working on this book, but I'm always amazed that working on Colonize This, uh, working with these different contributors around the country was such an amazing way to focus during a difficult time. 
And uh, I don't know if you want to say something about that, Sharon, because I think that always is a question also with like sitting on the cushion versus being out on the street, working on a book versus being out on the street or organizing the neighbors or whatever. There's a lot of dualities, I guess you would say, you know, like certainly, you know, people comment when I do things like have loving kindness meditations for the kids in cages, which I did on Twitter. It was once a month and it was just a minute. But, you know, there was a lot of commentary like, you know, you're as bad as the people who are just promoting thoughts and prayers when you're doing something. And and all I could say in response is that this stuff is hard to look at. It's hard for me to look at. And the way I can keep engaged is by also connecting to something bigger. That's And it's a little bit like when you were saying about taking care of yourself, you know, which is a significant factor in, in the real life of trying to make change. And so, you know, that duality exists very strongly. And then in terms of the book, I wrote every word of um, real change pre-pandemic, and then uh, that happened, you know, and then this friend was reading it to excerpt it somewhere and he just kept reading it, the examples and thinking, that's what made you anxious. Oh boy, wait till you see what's coming. So then I had the opportunity because they postponed the publication to September 1st to write a new preface and that helped me feel, okay, this is more grounded in our time. And then the murder of George Floyd and then the movement and then the protests. And and I woke up, I think, three times thinking, that book is totally irrelevant. And then I calmed down. Because what I saw for myself is that I was seeking more timeless truths to help me keep going and to give me perspective and energy to keep trying and keep working. And so I thought, okay, you know, this was my best shot at presenting some timeless truths. And and you're totally right. The people that I got to interview were so inspiring. They are so inspiring. And I would say that, if anything, they're not surprised at what's happening, but there's also a, a quality of maybe some hope, you know, or... Possibility, hope is a difficult word in Buddhist languaging, but there's some sense of possibility that maybe is new, and they are really reflecting. And you just reminded me, when all the terrible news was was coming out about the children at the border and their parents, um, I was actually at IMS the weekend that we were going to have these national protests that happened to be the People of Color Retreat. And it was such a a moment of, oh, I'm going to be sitting silently with another hundred people of color. Should all of us be out on the street? I decided to go because I felt like I know there's going to be another protest and I need to fill the well. You know, I need to fill up my cup, basically. So I'm giving from a full cup. And what the instructors did that was amazing was that we had a silent march in the hall. And, you know, it was interesting. It was one of the more powerful political marches I've been a part of, in part because I was working on loving kindness as we were marching. So I was sending loving kindness. And there are a lot of political figures that I never thought I would send loving kindness to. And I was able to for that first time. And it was incredible to see like my own heart open, you know, during that march, because it was so shut down in that kind of, you know, self-protectiveness way. And it was like, oh, right, this is why I'm here this weekend. This is just as important 
uh, screaming and being on the, you know, be, being out on the street as well. It was, it was really an incredible experience. Daisy, you wrote about the fear that people without papers feel. You talk at one point about your own mother and the days before she was a citizen, and she says the fear is terrible. And it wasn't long after that article was published that I went on retreat, and I thought, there are all these people around me who live in that fear every day, and I'm totally unaware of it. But on that retreat, I started to think, what might it feel like? I remember my mind drifted to that. And what might it feel like to live with that fear? And it's everywhere since there are so many people who live with that fear. And it's exacerbated by this cruel internment on the border. Do you want to say something about that fear or having been so close to people who lived with that fear? Yeah, you know, I think my experience is very typical of a lot of people. I was coming of age in the 1980s. And our parents and elders did not talk about being undocumented. That was very much a topic for adults. And yet you could sense something was happening and that there was some kind of fear. And I remember being around 11 or 12 and going through my uncle's wallet and finding essentially his green card, finding his ID that identified him as a resident alien and asking my mother, what is that, you know? And, and her whispering, like he's getting his papers fixed and everything, you know, it's nothing for you to worry about or to think about. But immediately knowing, you know, in the way that children know, like something is going on here that the adults are really worried about. So I grew up actually not knowing that my mother was undocumented, even though she told us, it's amazing what you can do with language to protect your children, right? She told us she had come on a tourist visa she told us she was working. And so we just grew up like, oh, of course, you come to the U.S. on a tourist visa and you have a job. <laughs> like, that's how it goes. And, you know, we, we, we knew no differently until we were older, actually. And I was having some conversations. And it might have actually been after that particular conversation that I called my sister and I said, you realize our mom was undocumented. And my sister says, no, she had something. She had, you know, she had something and I realized, oh, that's how she spoke to us about it. That's how she negotiated with her fear was like, oh, I had a tourist visa and then I married your father. Well, there were quite a number of years in between the tourist visa and marrying my dad, who's a Cuban exile. And so he had a green card and residency for those reasons as a refugee. So what's been incredible actually about the organizing that has happened within the undocumented community is that it's actually given language, I think, for my mother's generation, right? It's given a language for my generation to turn around and say, like, this is not something you have to be ashamed of or to keep in secret. You might need to keep it in secret from certain people, but how can we have a conversation among ourselves? So yeah, I think actually for me, it, it's been it's been quite a shock in my adulthood to realize like, oh, I was growing up with people who were afraid and I didn't even know it at the time. I didn't have the language to say they were afraid. And it, it does make you think about your childhood in very different, through a very different lens as well. Sharon, do you have anything to say or to ask before we close? Uh, yeah, I mean, just in, in, in terms of that last topic, what I put in the book also was kind of the story of, as, as James knows, I was in the hospital about almost a year and a half ago for about 10 days. And then when I got out of the hospital, I was staying at this friend's house in California. And I had this infection. I was on IV antibiotics and I couldn't leave the state. And this friend, this very generous friend, uh, arranged for me, well, several very generous friends, people who let me move in. And then this friend arranged for me to have home health aides. 
which meant a lot to me so I wouldn't be a terrible burden on my friends. And many of those people were undocumented and they not only saved me, they were incredible people. You know, often this was their second job or third job or they were working overnight because they were taking their dad to dialysis during the day or And I thought how we can live in different worlds. I mean, I'd always had somewhat of a recognition because I think I'd never been to a friend's parent's funeral without somebody saying so-and-so was the savior of our family. It was because of their work, taking care of my mom, taking care of my dad, that they could be at home or, or whatever. But it didn't really hit me until it was me. And I had this tremendous exposure to a world that, isn't necessarily my day-to-day reality. And I thought, how important is that, that we really get to see each other and hear each other and, and kind of know what the experience is of people that are so easily to categorize in the abstract. Okay, although I am a lapsed Catholic, I'm going to exercise some nun-like discipline and, <laughs> and, and require that we wrap up. Okay, we're wrapping up. Thank you so much, Sharon, and thank you, Daisy. I, although we've worked together, it's so great to finally be able to see your face. Same here. So we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. And Sharon, of course, I'll talk to you very soon. So thank you both. And Sharon, thank you for including me in the book. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really honored. Thank you. You've been listening to author and professor Daisy Hernandez and Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.